Today, I chat with Dr. Emeryn Mayer, director of the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience and UCLA Distinguished Professor of Medicine about the bi-directional communication between our mind, brain, and gut. We'll answer the question of what the mind-gut connection really is and how it may be affected during these unique times and how we can improve our diet to foster a healthier microbiome. Thank you for joining us today during this pandemic. A lot of us are facing changes in our eating habits and sometimes drastic changes as our usual sources of food are cut off or limited. I'd like to focus today's conversation on your area of expertise, the mind-gut connection, and how it relates to the current time. So to start off with, what is the mind-gut connection? First of all, uh, Wendy, thanks for having me on the, on the program. And to give you a brief answer, it essentially refers to something that everybody has experienced, a relationship between what goes on in our brain, in our mind, in our emotions, and what happens in the gut and what we feel in the, in, in the gut. This has been known to people for a long time, but has become a scientific discipline much more recently, particularly with the start of the microbiome science that has made this a lot more exciting to people than uh, it has been before that. So it's a biological connection. It's not just in our minds. It's not just in our gut. There's multiple communication channels that mediate this. And the communication goes both ways. It goes from the mind, the brain, to the gut. And it goes from the gut to the brain. So I think to unpack what you just said, the first question I have is, can you define microbiome? Because when you first defined it for me, it was kind of a wild thought to imagine the quantity and the age of them. And so could you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah, so it's it's uh, the, the numbers have gone, you know, the comparative numbers between human and microbial cells has sort of undergone some evolution, but there's about a, up to 100 trillion microbial organisms that inhabit, that live all the way really from the stomach to the end of the uh, large intestine. The highest density by far is in the large intestine. Then comes the the end of the small intestine and very few in the in, in in the stomach. So in terms of what we know today, mainly from studies focusing on analysis of stool samples, we get a mix of all of these. So we can't really tell exactly you know what we measure in a in a fecal sample if this comes from which part of the GI tract, which is important, but we just don't have the answer. Now there's about a hundred trillion of these or- microorganisms. There's there's different types. There's the microbes, the archaea, the fungi. The area we know most about are the, the bacteria. So the number is about the same, plus minus. Um, it's about the same as our human cells. So we are half human, half microbial, really. And it's been called a, a holobiont, you know, because we live in such close synchrony with these organisms. But what's even more informative is that we have about 20,000 human genes and we have, you know, millions of microbial genes. So the, the capacity for these microbes to produce molecules that influence our human physiology, the gut physiology, and also the brain in this brain gut communication is, is enormous. We, we're just at the moment scratching on the surface of understanding this. Clearly a rapidly emerging field with rapidly developed technology, but 
So we can say because it's also in evolution, it's been with us with animals from the first primitive animals millions of years ago to today and has really become a, a blueprint for most animals from the bees to mice to, you know, horses, uh, humans. We all have a microbiome. There's only a few species who don't have that. So it seems to be a very important evolutionary design in human life and in, and in, and in life, in animal life in uh, general. I mean, the connection to the brain is even more intriguing because many of these molecules that the microbes can produce are what we call neuroactive molecules. That means or they have homologs in the nervous system, means molecules that look very similar, can act on the same receptors, and that can interact with our nervous system. There's these neuroactive molecules, and there's also molecules like short-chain fatty acids that they produce from fiber that we eat that have a positive influence on gut inflammation, for example. So really two different types of signaling molecules, some that act directly on our nervous system and others that can influence the nervous system indirectly through regulating inflammation in the gut, which then can spread throughout the organism all the way into the brain. So these neuroactive homologs that they are producing, they get into our system? Is that what you're saying? Yes, and we, we don't know to what degree these different pathways are important. So one very important communication channel is the vagus nerve. You know, the vagus nerve innervates amongst all our other viscera, the gut, uh, particularly plays a major role in the signaling from the gut to the brain. These nerve endings of the vagus in the gut have receptors that respond to molecules that are produced by the microbes. So that's one communication pathway. There's another one, the vagus nerve innervates cells in the gut that produce hormones um, and serotonin. And these cells respond to signals from the microbes. So there's an indirect step. There's a step in between the microbes signaling to these hormonal cells, which then act on the vagus and then go to the brain. And then there's some of these neuroactive molecules. People have, you know, speculated this that actually are being absorbed and get into the bloodstream and reach the brain directly, which, you know, if they can cross the blood-brain barrier or if they reach regions that are outside the blood-brain barrier, like the hypothalamus, can influence brain function and, and brain activity. So you mentioned the serotonin. I understand you've educated me on this. It's predominantly produced in the gut. Is that right? Yeah, even though, you know, it plays such an important role and we know so much about serotonin, what it does to the brain from mood, pain sensitivity, sleep, appetite, well-being. There's very little of the serotonin that's in the brain, in these uh, nerve cells in the brain, just about probably less than 5% of our total body serotonin, whereas most of it is stored in these what are called warehouses in the gut, these so-called entero chromaffin cells that, you know, produce serotonin, store it and release it. And uh, probably too long a story um, for this for this conversation, but a lot of work that has come out of UCLA, particularly uh, Elaine Chow, investigator, some, some of these pivotal studies, is a close interaction between the microbes in the gut and these entrochromaffin cells. So the microbes are responsible for the regulation of the synthesis of serotonin 
in our cells, so the microbes send signals to the, these cells to stimulate serotonin, to release serotonin. The serotonin cells in turn talk back to the microbes. So they release the serotonin not only inside of our body, but they talk back to the microbes. And to make that story even more intriguing, the microbes have molecules that are similar to these serotonin transporter that we have in our brain and our own cells, which are the the target of um, antidepressants, of serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So the serotonin microbe-brain interactions is a good example how how intricate this relationship is between, and I forgot to mention, obviously, the microbes and their activity to stimulate serotonin production is closely related to the amount of tryptophan that we ingest. So a close link between our diet, the microbial activity, the serotonin synthesis, serotonin influencing brain function through the vagus nerve, and talking back to the microbes, telling them, well, we don't really know what our serotonin tells the microbes. Is that still an unresolved question? Hmm. Well, I want to get back to the tryptophan, but before I do that, I think that what you're describing to me really implies or suggests that what we put in our own mouths that gets down into the what would be ultimately our our large intestine, which is where most of these microbes live, but even the small intestine is critical or might be critical for influencing these microbes to do their job. Am I correct in thinking that way? Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's and to me, it's sort of really been an eye opener to realize. So I'm not trained in nutrition, but I've gotten fascinated with this topic because clearly it has such an important influence of this key function of our brain-gut microbiome axis that not taking into account, for example, in, in psychiatric disease or in our well-being is leaving half of the story out. You know, And I, I think this continues that we really don't, I would say 99% of our medical students have not heard about that story. So that's really... Yeah, well, we're working on that, right? You and I. <laughs> it's an important piece. Well, so let's talk about tryptophan, which we, you know, all of us know about tryptophan during Thanksgiving time, right? <laughs> God, it puts us to sleep. <laughs> Tell me, uh, is when you're saying tryptophan in, influences microbes, and is it in a positive way or in the microbiome, or is it a negative way, or or how, or is it more complicated than that? Um, it's more complicated, like most things in the gut. So. You know, tryptophan is just really the precursor that microbes then metabolize in multiple different um, molecules. And two stand out, you know, one is the serotonin that the microbes themselves don't produce. They can't produce it, so they they use our uh, enterochromaffin cells to stimulate our cells to produce it, and then they take it up from these cells. But there's also another one, another metabolite called kynurinin, Nobody can remember that name, but it's a pretty important molecule, pretty at least as important as the serotonin because it can cross the blood-brain barrier. And it has been shown to have inflammatory and neurodegenerative effects on on the central nervous system. So the, the, the ratio between canuronin and serotonin is regulated in part by, by our microbes. You know, when we when we talk about diseases that are involved with what's called neuroinflammation, so uh, immune activation in the brain. 
Cannurinine often comes up as a, as, as a key signaling molecules that, that plays a role in this. But, but there's many others as the indoles, each of which have specific functions. Always important to realize that only some of them can cross the blood-brain barrier and affect brain function. Others act on the gut, on the vagus nerve, on other cells in the gut. So the simple story is there's, there's two of these metabolites, serotonin and canurinine, both of which play very important roles, sort of in opposite directions, really. And what you said earlier about the tryptophan, so like all dietary items, or most dietary items, I would say the majority is absorbed in the small intestine. So we have very elaborate, specialized mechanisms, transporters, that can take up these molecules. The exceptions are very large molecules uh, or molecules for which we don't have enzymes to break them down. So the very large ones would be the polyphenols. People often mislabel as antioxidants because it's just one small function that they have. So these are too large to be absorbed in our small intestine. They all go down to the microbes. The microbes break them down into smaller metabolites, which then are being absorbed. And they're the ones that exert their beneficial effects, incompletely understood really on the brain. The other ones are dietary fiber that... Um, if it's particularly if it's not processed or cooked, we don't have the enzymes to break it down. So it goes down to the microbes. It's actually the main food supply, the, the main nutrition for the microbes. So I always say it's, it's, a, it's a very easy answer to the question, you know, what can you do for your gut health or your gut microbial health? Well, it's eating a lot of plants with fiber because that's what they thrive on and that's where they produce their one class of molecules mentioned earlier, the short-chain fatty acids, that have beneficial effects really on pretty much all the cells in the gut, you know, the epithelium, the lining, the anti-inflammatory, they stimulate growth of gut cells, they act on on vagal afferent terminal signal to the brain. Yeah, so coming back to the tryptophan, like many things, we know many nutritional things, um, Classical nutrition, the field has learned a lot about the the stuff that we can absorb in the small intestine, but it's really just beginning to understand the full potential of what cannot be absorbed in the small intestine, but it goes down to the microbes. And I, I do want to say, in my opinion, it's not just the colon, even though there's most of these microbes, there's a lot of them in the end of the small intestine, in the ileum, and even in the end of the jejunum. So... Many of these beneficial processes may well happen in the small intestine, but we don't really know that for sure. Just so we can um, summarize just what we've talked about so we can move on to people who might be eating for comfort that might not necessarily at this time be the kinds of foods we want to feed our microbiome with, or maybe there's a balance that we can come around to. But what you're describing is eating a, a diet full of fiber that also um, has polyphenols and foods like that or eat, eat the rainbow of, of vegetables and fruits, that kind of diet, which we all have heard about. But that if you go down to the granular, it's really about the sort of the diversity of, of the fruits and vegetables that are as, as important as, a, as one fruit itself, right? You have to have a diversity because there's differences in what they can bring to you. Is that kind of... That's a, that's a very important point. So, uh, you know, Rob Knight with the uh, American Gut Project, 
they have found from their survey of thousands of fecal microbial samples from volunteers they've sent them in, that it's really the variety of plant products that determines, that has an influence on, on the diversity and the, and the richness of the, of the gut microbes. And, you know, Rob always uses this example. Uh, yeah, you can be a vegetarian and just eat pizzas. That, that will not give you an increased diversity of your gut microbiome. The more diversity that you can add to the vegetables and fruits that you eat, the better. And, and it it's, makes a lot of sense because there's hundreds of different fiber molecules and there's thousands of different polyphenols. Each of these plant components requires a different set of microbes, different strains of microbes to process them adequately. So you force, by feeding this kind of a diet, you force the system to diversify. And so that's really, you know, one of the key concepts, even though blueberries and olives may have the highest concentration of beneficial polyphenols, there's thousands of other um, molecules, uh, polyphenols in much smaller quantities in, in all fruits. But talking about the gut microbiome, so there's three things. I mean, there's the plant-based oils and fats, there's the fiber, and there's the polyphenols. I would say that's what plants can contribute. And if you satisfy that need for these, you will automatically get enough vitamins and trace minerals uh, in your diet anyway. So it's not that you have to monitor each each of these, you know, uh, health-promoting components of of, um, of plant-based food. So it's actually, in, in some ways, it's fairly easy. The science is pretty hard. Mm. The practice is pretty easy. <laughs> Thank heavens <laughs> for all of us non-bench scientists. Uh, I have to say, you're also, besides being an incredible scientist, you're an incredible author. And one of your, your blogs that you wrote recently regarding uh, how the gut microbiome plays a role in the individual response to the COVID-19 virus. I love this description that you wrote about the world of the microbiome, so to speak. And you say, far from being a peaceful world of coexistence, there's a constant struggle between these microorganisms. Using antibiotic molecules suppresses each other and to preserve ecological niches. So viruses living in our gut prey on the bacteria and kill approximately 10% of the microbiome microbial population every day, and the gut microbes fight back with a vast battery of antibiotic-like molecules. It just sounds so hectic down there. I never knew there were things <laughs> like that happening on a regular basis. And Well, it's just... <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a miniaturized ecosystem. So if you look around in any ecosystem, you know, you look at Yellowstone, I mean, there's a lot of non-harmonious things going on, you know, uh, species are being eaten, uh, you know, the bears prey on, on some animals, the wolves, sort of one of the, the, the keystone species takes care on, on, on the very top of the, uh, of, of the system. So something very similar, but in a miniaturized form, you know, goes on within the gut. And the the interesting thing about these um, these antimicrobial substances that they produce, I mean, obviously they they can talk to each other. These microbes. That's why they have these these enormous number of genes and molecules that they can produce to communicate with each other. What this communication entails, we don't really know, but we do know that some of these antimicrobial substances they produce limit the growth of other of other species. So this elaborate system that's pretty much stable throughout our life 
is is not just something it's not static you know it's a it's a constantly evolving and um you know generated system that that requires a lot of work from from each of the participants and survival skills we 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 don't know as much about the the viruses in this game and the fungi obviously you know viruses and fungi play a huge role in the soil another ecosystem that has a big microbial component and, and we know more about this in the soil we we don't know as much at this point well we know about pathogenic viruses you know that that can create havoc within the gut and kill off a large number of the of bacterial uh, organisms like rotavirus yeah yeah like rotavirus and um but the ones the, the the commensal viruses we don't know as much about you know what what regulatory role do they play and are they ultimately responsible for some of these microbial differences that we see in different disease populations we we don't have the answer for that yet so Getting back to what's going on now with COVID-19 and people's, you know, basically sheltering in place, many of us have gone to some of our favorite comfort foods that might not necessarily be promoting our gut and others might be going to comfort foods that do. And also the, the scarcity of certain foods are, are present. So what happens if you are not getting as much of a variety of fruits and vegetables and or also increasing some of the more processed foods or, you know, simple sugar foods? Yeah, let me start. So the the, the simple um, component of this question is has to do with, you know, what we typically consider the Western diet, high in sugars, refined carbohydrates, uh, low in fiber and high in animal fats. That, that that diet clearly has been, I mean, there's a large number, as you're aware of, um, studies now, both, um, you know, epidemiological studies, but now most recently also intervention studies, that um, that this diet has a negative effect on gut microbial diversity and relative abundances of, of health-promoting uh, organisms, uh, and also on the, on, on the metabolites that they produce. So in this time where people may not think so much about, you know, do I, do I get my servings of fruits and vegetables every day? But sadly, you know, where a lot of people are struggling with getting enough to eat in general, which is sort of a, an incredible situation that we're in. On the one side, the fruits and vegetables are being uh, thrown away by farmers who can't get them to to the restaurants. On the other hand, you know, the, the consumer's particularly the lower socioeconomic populations don't get enough of those healthy foods. So it's a strain and stress on, on the gut microbial health. On top of that, um, so the comfort foods, uh, unfortunately, high fat and high sugar foods provide immediate comfort. So studies on that, that they decrease the, the acute stress response, you feel better, you release dopamine. So there's a lot of uh, things that in evolution have evolved to make us crave for these foods. Cheesecake's um, my favorite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, and I should say, normally, you know, small amounts of these foods are not bad for you. But if it becomes a significant part of your diet, then yes, it, it will. It probably has contributed a lot to to these changes, these, these negative changes we have seen in Western populations. So, yeah, this will add, you know, this eating, this comfort food will add another on top of regressing to a typical Western diet and you add these things to so it makes it even worse. 
It's another aspect potentially may play a role. The, a lot of people, you know, spend a lot of time watching watching Netflix in the evenings and snack um, during these times. So after dinner, there's also a lot of recent science that has shown that so time restricted eating, meaning you know you you don't eat around the clock, something in have something in your stomach, but you restrict the eating to to six or eight hours. That if you break that time restricted eating pattern, that also has a significant effect on our uh, gut microbes and the way they interact with our, you know, with our gut-based immune system. So there's a lot of things just from the diet side here um, that are are not good in this current situation. Yeah, you're referring a lot to what's com- emerging as the whole circadian rhythm of eating. And yes, yeah. yes. we'll have to have a whole nother podcast on that one because that's, that's super <laughs> interesting. We've, we've talked a lot about how a diet, maybe this sort of modern, high-fat, low-fiber diet has been adopted by the American population in general or the Western population. I, I understand now it, it, it can impact these microbiomes, make them less diverse or not as healthy, maybe. What, what does it do to your, your mood or your brain? Um, so we know now... You know, from 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 some of these uh, epidemiological, from many epidemiological studies, that if you compare populations that are on a typical Western diet and those that are on a largely plant-based diet, that for example, depression um, prevalence is significantly higher in in the in, in the Western diet group. Also, the risk for Alzheimer's disease and and probably other. Uh, brain disorders, but it's it's been probably best characterized, I would say, for for depression. Recently, there has been studies in this field, what's now called nutritional psychiatry, where people are doing interventions. So they take a group of people with depression and they're randomized to two types of diet, either a plant-based diet or plant-enriched diet um, and a the typical Western diet. And they found that there are changes, um, beneficial changes in in the intervention arm with the Mediterranean type diet. You know, it's not just you know traditional Mediterranean. It's also it's another acronym called the Mind Diet um, or the Dash Diet, which all share this property of being primarily or seventy five percent plant based. So there's now several studies. Just recently came out last week two of them, which really show that this has a effect not just on the symptoms but also on the relative abundances in a beneficial way of microbes and on some of the metabolites. And I noticed uh, in your blog, you mentioned too that were really important anti-inflammatory herbs, the turmeric and the ginger. Yes. And this, yeah, it's another, as I said in the beginning, you know, even though I'm trained as a gastroenterologist, I obviously never heard about this until several years ago when I got involved in this microbiome science. And um, it is remarkable you know, these plants, um, the molecules in them are such large molecules similar to the polyphenols that they, most of it cannot be absorbed in the small intestine. So they stimulate our, our taste receptors uh, in our mouth. So that's why we, you know, we use them as spices. But then what happens after that is a um, small fraction is being absorbed, but the, large, the largest amount goes down, again, my guess is into the end of the small intestine is being absorbed, transformed by microbes, then absorbed and then exerts its anti-inflammatory effects, which are so strong, you know, that there are studies even 
that they have been beneficial in the treatment of mild inflammatory bowel disease mm. uh, in a randomized study. So it's it's not it's not a trivial effect that mm-hmm. they. Well, they certainly have been used in traditional medicine. My question for all of us who might have been indulging a little bit more than we wanted to in, say, cheesecake, the recovery time or your ability to maybe pivot towards these more plant-based foods that you're describing, 75% being your goal, how long would you say the microbiomes would sort of come back to life, so to speak? Yeah, this is a very interesting question. So at some point, people said they will never come back to life fully. So our Western microbial ecosystem is definitely compromised. Many factors start early in life, probably during pregnancy, nutrition of the mother influences that to a certain degree as well. So many of these uh, microbes are have been lost forever. So they're like the extinct species or strains. And those are currently, with our current means, we don't really have a way to, to bring them back. There's some populations in the world in, in, in Africa that live sort of a, a, a prehistoric lifestyle. They oscillate depending on the seasons and what they eat between our type of um, compromised uh, microbial composition and abundance. But in their case, they come back, you know, so they have the, probably they have some, somewhere they keep a very small number of these organisms that then, that then with the right diet, you know, come, come back to life. In, in our case, some of them, um, have gotten extinct, and you know some people have warned uh, that this, uh, if this process continues, we'll lose more and more of these species. And I, th- I think I'll, I like to take the more positive approach to that, um, or positive viewpoint, optimistic viewpoint, that if you switch, and this has been now shown in several studies, if, if you switch to such a diet, they will come back. Even in these trials, lasted eight weeks. Uh, even in that time period, they came back. And these weren't even diets that I would push, you know, that I would recommend to to maximize the diversity of the plant-based foods that you eat. Um, so these are just a regular Mediterranean diet in these studies. So the, the short answer is we won't get back to where we were 100,000 years ago. Um, we may not even want to get back there. But um, we can certainly improve the situation significantly uh, with health benefits, uh, with these dietary interventions even in a two-week period. Oh, that's very hopeful. I'll go with your take on it. (laughs) Makes me feel better. So looking at the list of foods that you mentioned in your blog, large amounts of fiber, the turmeric and ginger foods that have healthy fats like olive oil and avocado, and fermented foods. Now, how can you guide people, for instance, to the yogurts that are fermented? Because I know that's always sort of a head scratcher. But how do you identify a fermented versus sort of an overly processed yogurt? So this is a head scratcher. There seems to be a, a, a general small benefit from for for a lot of you know health related issues and so they these studies contain a whole variety of different probiotic strains and uh, as as you know they're all you know from the tax of um, lactobacilli and bifidobacteria yeah there's very few others that you know that, that that are in commercial use but there's a lot of microorganisms that are involved in fermentation of a variety of foods like in cultures like you know the asian cultures korea japan uh, china a lot of things are being fermented 
and plant-based foods and uh, fish and you know eggs each of these probably has somewhat different types of microorganisms we we can't really call those probiotics because we there, there are no studies that have demonstrated the health benefit in general the feeling is that um, what what has happened in 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 our civilized world um, hygiene has has reduced greatly the microbes that we ingest with our food. So the way I look at it is what, what all these fermented food products do is they, they reintroduce in a controlled fashion external microbes into our ecosystem within our gut. And so based on that, I think this is what I recommend to my patients, a large variety of fermented foods, if you rotate them, if you have preferences, you know, some people don't like kombucha or don't like kimchi. So you can either select the ones that you like or you can rotate them. It's probably the most plausible way of contributing a health benefit to your, to your microbes. So increasing, increasing diversity and relative abundance by, by external feeding of, of these organisms. And I, I know that, for instance, um, one way to reduce food waste is to uh, ferment the foods that you might not have quite gotten to when they were at their freshest. So it's a skill set I've never yet mastered, but I'm one of the things that maybe we could do while we're sheltering in place. Uh, yeah, that's a good yeah. idea. Good idea. So there's a few helpful pieces of advice that you've already just delivered to us. One is that if you have been heading towards those comfort foods more than you wished you had, or you feel that you're ready to sort of take on a um, more healthful diet, it's possible and plausible that you can improve your microbiome, which will then in turn potentially impact your mood. So moving towards this Mediterranean diet of fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, healthy fats like olive oil and avocado and fermented foods, that those things, those kinds of foods, and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be all that, right? You, you can still have your brownie or your chocolate chip cookie. It's just not overly abundant. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and, you know, if you travel in Italy, you'll, you'll see there's a lot of delicious sweets that they have in general, the quantities, and, and there's a big difference, you know, tra traditional Italian or traditional Mediterranean cuisine is quite different from what you find there today. And also the regions are different, you know, Northern Italy having a lot more ham and, and, and meat products or, uh, you know, Parma, you know, where our friend Professor Del Rio is from. So they, they're, they're not really the traditional Mediterranean diet or which was used in the 60s to do these pivotal studies on, on uh, cardiovascular health. So, yeah, I I would say there's clearly a hedonic um, component to food and sweets give you that. A small amount of that is definitely something that contributes to your well-being and will not have any detrimental uh, effects. It's, you know, coming back to the cheesecake. I mean, eating a gigantic portion of cheesecake it's obviously different from eating a small chocolate that is delicious, but is obviously a, a tiny quantity of of the of the cake. So yeah, I'm 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 not yeah, I'm not saying that you should stop. And it, it's the same in some ways. You could say it's the same with meat. You know, if somebody there's people that love red meat, our son being one of them. I I, I think if you reduce this to a small percentage of your overall intake, it's probably not detrimental. You know, it's um, 
but what's happened in, in, in the Western diet, I mean, this has become like a daily or twice daily uh, component of, of people's meals, the hamburger, or, which is not just meat, but, you know, 60% fat, the, the more fat, the, the, the better it tastes. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, supporting the indulgence of, <laughs> of sweets with, its, with the Mediterranean diet. You're referring, but we've worked on it at UCLA and other places, the, uh, having meat be the condiment, not the center stage of the, of the meal. So you can get the flavors without necessarily that. And that's a, yeah, that's, that, that's a very wise. Yeah. And, and, and you could say this is true in general, you know, the flavors, yeah, you don't have to eat four, four bowls of ice cream to get the flavor. I mean, you could have one teaspoon of each flavor and get the same amount of pleasure the rest is essentially driven by your mechanisms in, in the brain having gone wild, you know, if you, because you, you sort of were teasing them with, with, the, with the teaspoon. That's right. And so I'll end with this question. What keeps you up at night? So at the moment, clearly what, what quite literally it's I'm working on my second book and I'm about two thirds through and that definitely wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning because I feel I don't have enough time to to finish it. But I would say, you know, what keeps me up, so taking this as a sort of as a, as, as a, as a more general uh, question, I, I think what, what we're seeing now with the COVID-19 epidemic and these differential um, vulnerabilities of different populations is something that I find really intriguing. And I've I've, I've written something about it, a speculative piece, and want to explore that further. So what we have seen, you know, that that the most vulnerable group is the group that has the most what we call comorbidity, you know, with the metabolic syndrome and obesity and uh, heart disease, depression, liver disease. I look at these disorders, these metabolic dis- and metabolic-related disorders, as really one chronic disease of our time. These so-called non-communicable diseases. And, you know, as I've done the research on this on, on my book, so you realize there's clearly a connection between the health of the gut microbiome and the prevalence of these diseases. And the most likely explanation is that ultimately that's related to the food that we eat. And that, uh, particularly, as I mentioned this earlier, low-income people or lower socioeconomic uh, people on the lower socioeconomic ladder uh, eat this uh, predominantly. There's also racial divide because those foods, unfortunately, are cheaper than than the ones, the, the fresh fruits and vegetables that we've talk, been talking about. That somehow there's ultimately a, a relationship to the gut microbiome. Uh, there's probably many factors that predispose people, but I mean, you, like you can't overlook this, that there's, this is a problem that most of us are not affected by, uh, probably less than five percent at most so you could really ask that question is this uh, are we more prone and more vulnerable to these kind of diseases and i'm sure this won't be the last pandemic that's come across you know the world have we become more uh, vulnerable to these diseases because of our diet dietary habits and because of the changes in the gut microbiome with the decreased resilience and resistance to perturbations like that. So I, I think that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And um, it's obviously a lot of research going on now, including at, at, at UCLA. But I think it's a, it's a big question that certainly from a nutrition standpoint and from a lifestyle standpoint is would be worthwhile exploring. 
Well, it's just one more reason why we need to try to move towards a more healthful diet for all and really reduce these inequities in our health system and in our health of our population. It's, uh, yeah, it's a really, it's unveiled another really big health disparity in our country. Yeah, when you think about it, the cost of this pan- pandemic, you know, is several fold higher as the cost would have been if if you could have intervened early with healthy diets and, you know, lifestyle changes in, in these most vulnerable populations. That's right. Um, well, to leave on a positive note, there is a program that's a CDC program called the Diabetes Prevention Program that was studied and publish their outcomes in 2002, that does show if you are pre-diabetic, which often also might be the prelude to these other conditions like hypertension and obesity and so forth. If you are pre-diabetic and you participate in these group classes that are once a month for four months and once every other month, uh, once every other week for two more months and once a month for six months, so 22 sessions. But if you even just participate in 10 of them, you'll reduce your risk of getting diabetes by 58%. Better than the medication, metformin, which is also very commonly prescribed if you're pre-diabetic or even diabetic. So there are ways, and I think, and a lot of it is related to modest changes in your diet, in your physical activity, and then also there's a sense of social well-being that's promoted with these group classes over time. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah, I, I, I can only support that. I think the education, and, and that's really one of the reasons I've started to write books, you know, instead of talking to my colleagues who often are not that particularly interested in the diet part of gastroenterology. I, I think it's to reach as many people as possible and make them think about their, their diet in a rational way, because there's obviously lots of advice out there that that's really not evidence-based and, you know, has commercial uh, ra- uh, reasons behind it. I, I think that's the best thing that, that some of us in academia can do and, and promote this in the, among students, you know, to start out with, but also amongst the general population. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Emeryn, you're a real gem for not just UCLA, but for our country and our, our our world. And I'm really looking forward to reading your second book. Your first book was amazing. And we'll put all that at the end of this podcast so others can learn from your wisdoms. And and they're quite readable too. So don't worry. He's very knowledgeable, but he makes it very digestible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Wendy. It was a pleasure, you know, to to add this dimension to our uh, ongoing scientific interactions. I'm really excited about this. And Great. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Six Feet Apart, a special series of the Live Well podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by UCLA's Seminole Healthy Campus Initiative Center. To stay up to date with the rest of the episodes in this special series and to get more information on maintaining your mental, social, and physical well-being during COVID-19, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcasts. Thank you and stay remote.